so barring some very drastic change in plans, this will indeed be the last time we see you. Feels like the goodbye has been going on for the last month, <laughs> which is kind of sad. We've only been here for nine months, so that's a ninth of our time has been saying goodbye to you <laughs> when you think about it. Um, but anticipating that I'm going to get wrapped up in, in the passage today, I'm going to start by saying goodbye now, start by saying thank you. Uh, the last nine months have been really, really good for our family. Um, just having a place where our kids can go, sit under the teaching of other Christians, and we don't have to worry about them, just that blessing in itself has made the last nine months totally worth it from our perspective. Um, I don't have to preach with a baby on my hip this morning. <laughs> that just feels good to know that there are people who love our kids, who have invested in them, and are teaching them the ways of God with us. So just anybody who's been involved in the children's program, investing in our kids, thank you so much. That has meant the world to us as we have been here. Um, it's been really neat for our family now to have a home church. Annie grew up here, but I grew up on the East Coast. Um, so being here now, I feel like this is our home, where when we come back from Asia, we have a place that feels like home for all of us now. So that's been really, really special as well. So we do want to just take this time to say thank you. Thank you for receiving us, loving us, welcoming us, ministering to and with us. It's, it's been a, pleb, a privilege. If you don't know what we're doing, come Tuesday, we'll be taking off back to the East Coast. And then, Lord willing, we'll be going back to Thailand in August. And while we're in Thailand, the ministry is working with the church there, trying to strengthen the church by raising up solid, strong leaders so that they can equip their church, their people, to take the kingdom of God all over Asia. So we'll be working with pastors, building them up, and equipping them and encouraging them. We're excited to do that. We're excited to be sent out from this church. So thank you for your support while we've been here and your support as we go. Um, we will miss you guys very, very much. Um, but we're glad to go too. So see ya. <laughs> After this sermon, of course. Um, and as we do go, I do ask that you will continue to pray for us through the transition with the kids. And um, as we just go on our way, we ask that you pray for us. And with that, I'm going to share my prayer for you. Uh, I read this passage in Hebrews, and I thought of Edgewood Baptist Church, and this is my prayer. So in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 35 through 11.1, it reads, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So this is my departing prayer for you. It comes from this. Uh, I pray that you, Edgewood, will not shrink back. I pray that you will persevere in your faith. I pray that you will endure 
I pray that from, from hearts that are full of faith, full of assurance, that you will continue doing the will of God. I pray with all my might that you will not throw away your confidence. Don't throw it away. So what is your confidence? You might be wondering. <laughs> what am I not supposed to throw away, right? Yeah. Your confidence, my confidence. Well, I'll tell you what it's not. We don't have confidence in something that's unstable. We don't have some confidence in something that's fickle and changing. We don't have confidence in something that is temporal, something that will rust and one day fade into oblivion. Our confidence is in something that we can take full assurance in. Our confidence in something that is unchanging, something that is stable, something that we can be sure of. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what is your confidence? We're going to jump ahead to, to Hebrews 12, and then we'll jump back to Hebrews 10 in a minute. But Hebrews 12 28 to, 9 read, 28 to 29 reads this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So your confidence, my confidence, is that we have received an unshakable kingdom. That's your confidence. You have received a kingdom that is unshakable. It cannot be shaken. And some of you are looking at me like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't know that. What does that mean? <laughs> well, all right, let's break this down for a minute, okay? What is the kingdom? If we're going to have confidence in something, we need to know what it is. The kingdom that is not going to be shaken. What is the kingdom? The kingdom in the Bible is referring to the reign of God. Right now, in this time, in this point in history, the kingdom is the reign of God in people's hearts, in their minds, in people. And there's also a place that we call heaven geographical place somewhere I don't know where good luck finding it where God is reigning as well and in that place he is reigning supremely ultimately completely and there is coming a day where when Jesus comes back to earth the kingdom of God will come in its full power and its full might and God will reign supremely here over all people over all things in this place in the new heavens and the new earth So that's the kingdom, the reign of God. And now the unshakable part. What does it mean to not be shaken, cannot be shaken? This is another way of saying that it's unending, it's unchanging, it's stable. It is sure. You can have full assurance in this thing. It's not changing. It is indestructible. So point number one in your uh, sermon outline is the definition 
The kingdom of God is the unending and indestructible reign of God. The kingdom of God is the unending and indestructible reign of God. And if we keep going with this kingdom picture, every kingdom needs a king, right? So who is your king? Who is king? It's Jesus, right? The kids were here. That's something they could get right. Jesus? Yeah, yes. Jesus is king. We saw this in Acts a few weeks ago. That as a result of Jesus' perfect life and sacrifice, after he died, he was resurrected, and he was exalted into heaven. He ascended into heaven. He was exalted there, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, where he is reigning as Lord and King. And there's coming a day where all things will be put in submission under his feet, and he will reign over all the created order. So Jesus is the King. And we also saw a few weeks ago from Acts that this king, Jesus, is coming out of this Davidic line of kingship. But what's unique about Jesus' kingship is it is an unending kingship. His kingship has no end to it. It is constant. It is remaining with no end. It is an eternal kingship. Which means if the king is sitting on the throne forever, that his kingdom will last forever. If the king is unchanging and stable, his kingdom is unchanging and unstable. Now, Jesus is king in this kingdom, but there's this unique role that he also has within the kingdom that we don't really have in our kingdom, in our nation. He's priest. He's king and he's priest. So just like his kingship, as a result of his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice, as he was exalted into heaven, he entered into the throne room of heaven, he entered into the sanctuary of God, and he is acting as high priest on behalf of us, his people. And as he's in there, as he's in God's presence, he's doing what a priest does, and he is mediating on our behalf. He's there on behalf of us, his people, mediating between us and God. So what does that mean for Jesus to mediate on our behalf? Let's look at, we're going to go back, we're going to jump through Hebrews 10, and then we'll jump back to Hebrews 12 again. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 reads, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So there are these human priests who are always offering sacrifices, but these sacrifices are temporary. They can't take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So in, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, um, people would mess up like we tend to do, and it was the priest's job to come before God and offer, offer animal sacrifices, grain sacrifices, the fragrant sacrifices, and these sacrifices were laid down before God, and they had a temporary effectiveness for having God kind of ignore sins. What it was doing is it was cleansing the flesh of the people so that they might be in relationship with God. 
But this cleansing was temporal. It was not effective in getting rid of sin. It couldn't do it because these sacrifices were not perfect. God, the perfect, righteous, holy God, demanded absolutely perfect, righteous sacrifices. And these animals were not that. But then comes Jesus, fully God, fully man, perfect. And he chose to lay down his life, and that sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice that he did one time, took away sin forever. The sacrifice of Jesus did what these other sacrifices couldn't do. It took away sin forever. We continue reading in Hebrews 10, 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, his perfect sacrifice has taken away sin forever. When it says that, that uh, what does it say? Blah, 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 blah. I will remember their sins no more. He's forgiven them. He's not holding them against us anymore. It's done with. The issue of sin has been dealt with once and for all in Christ, period. He continues. Oh, he doesn't continue yet. I will continue. Point two in your sermon. Jesus' sacrifice was a one-time all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. It is finished. It's finished. Jesus on the cross. It's finished. Edgewood, your sin's been dealt with. It's done. Rejoice in that. So Jesus has dealt with sin. It's, it's a finished matter. So what does that mean for us? Well, there is one thing we have to do, right? You have to believe. Um, you have to place your trust in Jesus. You as a person have to actually believe that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to take away your sin forever. You have to believe that. That's what you do. He's done everything else. There's nothing else you need to do to atone for your sin. He's done it for you. There's nothing you can add to what he's done. He's done it for you. What you do is you trust him. So what is the implication of this? What do we do with all of this? Well, the, the preacher in Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10, 19, he picks up, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great 
priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near with true heart and a full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So to review, to review something that you've known probably most of your life, sin separated us from God. We could not come into God's presence because God is holy and perfect. We have sinned. We can't be with him. Our sin separated us from God. Jesus came. He laid down his perfect life, and this perfect sacrifice removed sin. So the thing that was keeping us from God's presence has been removed. So if we connect the dots, there is nothing keeping you and I from the presence of God anymore. The barrier's been removed. We were created to be in the presence of the almighty living God. And the one thing that was keeping us from doing that has been removed. Nothing keeping us from the presence of God except our unbelief. The only thing from keeping us from entering in and residing in the presence of God is really, really, really deep down truly believing with our hearts that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient to take away our sin. The, uh, the preacher of Hebrews, he tells his audience, he says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If, if we really held fast to our confession that Jesus' sacrifice took away our sin, we would enter the presence of God and we would stay there. We would draw near to God, as Hebrews says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Faith that we've been sanctified. Faith that we're cleansed by the blood of Christ. And as a result, we are then allotted free access to God through Christ. Now, I'm going to guess that 99% of you are sitting in your pew saying, yeah. Maybe your last day here, Billy, you could tell us something new, something profound, right? You're telling us something that we've known most of our lives. We can sit here and we can nod in in agreement. Yes, yes, yes. And our heads nod. Yes, yes, yes. But I'm going to challenge you. I don't think our lives are nodding. Yes, yes, yes. I don't think with our lives we're saying, yeah, I really trust Christ. I really trust that my sin has been dealt with. And maybe that's unfair. But 
this is me talking mostly to myself today. I'm preaching to you what I've been learning the last nine months. I don't trust it completely. Let me show you why I'm saying this, okay? So the, today is a day of uh, object lessons. Mine's not quite as cool as Jake's, but it's pretty cool. Um, Caleb's going to come up here, and he's not going to turn this on yet, okay? okay. And in this, in this analogy that we're going to do is I'm going to demonstrate to you why I'm saying what I'm saying, as I'm going to demonstrate what I do, and if I do it, there's probably some of you who are doing this. We need to start by saying, this is a very bright light. Uh, if you look directly into this light, you're going to see spots for quite a while. So if you have super sensitive eyes, at some point, this light is going to be shown at you, shined at you, whatever that is. The light will be pointed directly at your face. Maybe you don't stare right at the light. <laughs> But look at it enough that you see how bright it is. If, you, if there are kids in here or babies, you might want to cover their eyes when the light comes by because this is very bright. Was that sufficient? Yeah, good. Okay. We're not, uh, not quite yet, just in a second. Um, so, 1 John tells us, God is light. In him there is no darkness. God is light. Sin is darkness. Okay? And this is what we do. We are in sin. We are in the darkness. And since we're in sin, since we're in darkness, and we see that God is light, we see him, and as we approach him, we're scared for our lives, right? So what we do is, is we kind of hide from him. Where can I hide? I can hide back here. And we hide... And there's the throne of God. And as we approach him, we know I'm not supposed to be there. I'm dark. He's light. As that light shines on me, he's going to see how dark I am. So what we do is we approach God and we do all this cool stuff. We do these things that we call good deeds, right? So we're like, hey, God, look at this. Over here. Over here. Over here. But these things are temporary. The light goes out. Ah! We run and we hide because we're scared of him. We're terrified of him. So what do we do again? Okay. I get myself together. I get my good Christian tie on and my shirt, and I look pretty. And then when I'm ready, I do something good. I'm like, okay, God, over here. Look over here, buddy. Look at this. And of course, my good deed goes out, and I run, and I hide again. And it's this pattern over and over and over and over. Me approaching God, not confidently, but very timidly, like, look at this. Oh, no. Oh, no. And I run, and I hide. So I approach, and I retreat. I approach, and I retreat. And the whole time approaching him, I'm saying, hey, God, look at me. Look at me. I'm good enough. Look at me. Look at this. Look at this. But it's temporary. It's fleeting. And so I approach and I run away. I approach and I run away. Constantly retreating. Never residing in the presence of God like I was intended to. Is this resonating with anybody? But we as Christians, we're not in the dark anymore. By the grace of God, you're in the righteousness of Christ. You've been united with the Son of God. 
That union means that you are in Him. So here I am in the righteousness of Jesus now. Prep yourselves, people. So here is the righteousness of Christ. Full brightness, full illumination, full righteousness. And I'm in Him. But what do I do? I feel the need to add. So what I do is, I'm in Christ, but then I come in and say, God, look at me. Look what I can do. Look what I can do. So I'm in Christ. I'm in His righteousness. But the whole time that I'm in the righteousness of Christ, I still try to bring attention to my righteousness. And look, look at this. Look, God, I'm cool. Look what I did. And it's futile. It's silliness. You see how bright the righteousness of Christ is. And ours is just this fleeting little flicker. And we're saying, look at this. And we try to add to it. It's futility. We can't add to this righteousness. There's nothing you can do. As we approach God in the righteousness of Christ, He's not looking at your little flicker. He's looking at the all-perfect righteousness of Jesus. Thank you. So some of us are in Christ, in this room. I know you're Christians. Spend time with you. But if you're anything like me, you reside in Jesus and you trust that he saved, your, he saved you from your sin, but you feel the need to do these little, these little things. Say, hey God, look at me, look at me, it's okay. We try to add to what Christ has done for us because we don't really trust that what Jesus has done is sufficient. Uh, if you can relate to that, Knock it off. <laughs> I'm speaking to you like I speak to myself. i got to stop it. And then, what's really sad about that, though, and maybe you can relate to this, we're, we're, in, we're in Christ and we approach God and we do these good things and we, and we try to bring attention to ourselves so that God sees us because we feel like we need to do something to be in God's presence. And then when we mess up, we do the same thing we were doing over there in the darkness. We run for the hills. Because we think when our little good deed and light goes out, that God's going to see our darkness and he will destroy us. He will punish us. If we really, really trusted in the sacrifice of Christ, when we goofed up, we wouldn't run away from God. We would stand in his presence and say, I goofed up, but the righteousness of Christ is enough. I trust him enough to stay in your presence when I mess up. I don't have to run anymore. I can stay in the presence of God as I remain in Christ and his righteousness. But we don't do that because we don't really trust him. And then there's some of us, um, again, all fingers pointed here. 
where we say, okay, you know what? I trust that my, sac- my sin has been dealt with, that Jesus' sacrifice has taken away my sin. And so what we do as a result is we say, sweet. So we have this big righteousness of Christ, and what we do is we pull out our lawn chair, we get our nice cool can of cores or whatever, and we sit in the righteousness of Christ, or near it, more like it, and we say, hey God, look at that. Done deal. And we sit in our hands, and we just go on with our lives like nothing has changed. The only thing that really has changed is that we don't feel guilty about the sins that we continue to commit on a regular basis. Because we say, ah, it's done with. It's been dealt with, so I'm just getting on with life as normal. Your guilt's been removed, but nothing else has changed. You, we, we believe that our sin has been removed and our guilt has been removed, And our sin and our guilt has been removed so that we can enter into the presence of God, to be in his presence, to enjoy him, and yet we don't do it. Well, yeah, someday I'll do that, but for now, I'm just getting on with life as normal. And if, if you're in that boat, if you're someone who's like, yeah, I believe this, but deep down, you know, I don't really enter God's presence and reside in his presence, nothing's really changed, then I'm going to suggest that you don't really believe it. The whole point of having your sin removed is so you can be in the presence of God starting right now, this very moment. So if we jump back to our our picture of the kingdom, you have a king, you have a priest reigning over it, you have God's presence reigning. So who are the people? Well, the people of the kingdom are those who are submitted to the reign of the king, the subjects of the king, those who are submitted to the reign of Jesus in their lives, those who are submitted to his authority, to his reign. And it's also those people who trust in Jesus, in the priest, in his priestly ministry, and those people that in full submission to Christ and in full trust in Christ, they enter into God's presence and they stay there. The people of God are the people who spend time with God, who are with Him. Not the people who talk about God, who point to God, but the people who are actually with Him. Those are the people of the kingdom. People of God are those who constantly draw near to God in full dependence upon Jesus. Hebrew uses the language, Hebrews uses this language, they draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What does it look like to draw near to God with full hearts, with hearts that are full of assurance of faith? If we jump back to Hebrews 12, 28, it reads, Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So those who draw near to God with a true heart of full assurance of faith are those who draw near to God out of gratefulness. You've experienced the mercy and grace of Christ, and you're grateful. And what do you do? You're grateful, you draw near. You're so 
grateful and so just blown away by what he's done that you seek him, you want to be with him. And you enter into his presence. And as we enter into his presence, our hearts and our minds are focused on him, not on us. I've experienced him. I'm grateful for it. And I draw near because I want him. My attentions, my affections are focused on him, not on me. This whole silly match business, that's us focusing on ourselves, right? Those who have full assurance draw near with their attentions and their affections focused on Christ. And as a result, as, I, as we draw near to God, as our attention, our affections are on Jesus, we can do nothing but worship. The result is that as we draw near to God, we draw near and we worship him because we're focused on him. As we focus on the person of Christ, when you look at this bright light, you see his righteousness, it just blows you away. It startles you. It takes you down. It throws you to your ground, to the knees, and you're wow. You're overwhelmed, and you're in awe of how righteous he is, how perfect he is, how loving he is. You're just in awe of him. And so all you can do is cry out and worship him with your life. And the only thing you want is to be in his presence because you realize that there's nothing better. This is what you've been created for. So what does it mean to worship God? This passage, this verse says, to, to worship God, acceptable worship with reverence and awe. If we would continue reading Hebrews, if you would read anywhere else in the New Testament, we worship him with our lips. We sing his praises. We come together. We sing the praises of God. We worship him with our lips as we tell people about him. We proclaim what God has done in Christ. It's worship. And we worship him in our deed. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love those outside of the church. We love people. We serve God. We do good things as an act of worship. But the deeds, the good things we're doing, these little, these little things, the difference now is that I'm not doing them as I approach God. I'm not doing them so that I can get into the presence of God. I've entered into the presence of God by the blood of Christ, by his righteousness, and now in the presence of God, I do good things as an act of worship. I don't do these as an act of justification. I don't do good deeds so that I can get in with God. I'm in with him, and from this position of being in him, I do these good things. Totally different. My deeds are an act of worship, not an act of justification. That means that all I do is for God and for his glory, so that people might see his goodness, not my goodness. Your final point in your notes is a summary. This is what I've learned while I've been with you, so thank you. You, Christian, have the unprecedented joy and privilege of confidently entering into and residing in the presence of the living 
God. You have the unprecedented joy and privilege of confidently entering into and residing in the presence of the living God. We have been given a privilege that we, every human being on the face of the earth, is what we've been created for, to be in the presence of God. And you have that privilege. You and I have this privilege to be in God's presence. Are you doing it? When you rise in the morning, do you want to enter the presence of God? When you're driving in your car in traffic, do you want to enter into the presence of God? When you're sitting at your office, when you're taking care of your kids, when you're cooking on the stove, when you're in the bathroom, do you want to be in the presence of the living God? If you are in this room, I'm looking around. I see, know most of the faces by now. If you are in this room and you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about entering the presence of God, if you're like, you know what, I've never done that. Your sin has been dealt with in Christ. It's finished. There's nothing keeping you from God in his presence except your unbelief. Trust in Jesus. Trust in his righteousness. As you trust in him, you have full access to God 24-7 for the rest of eternity. That's your gift in Christ. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, do it now. In a few moments, we're going to sing two songs. As these two songs are singing, I'll ask the prayer team to come up. If you want to talk with someone about that, you want to pray with someone, there will be here, people up here to talk with you, to pray with you about that. Enter into his presence today for the first time. There's nothing like it. If you've been a Christian for who knows how many years, probably longer than I am old, is that the phrase? And you're sitting there saying, yeah, me too. <laughs> Me too. I'm tired of doing this match nonsense. I'm tired of approaching God with my attention and my affections pointed towards me. If you know you're doing that, stop. You don't have to. Futility is the word. Trust in Christ. There will be people up here People who do that, come talk with them, come pray with them about that. Um, as I think about this congregation and this community, what, where my heart is at is believing that God wants to use this church to bless this area. You have to remember, he's the one that's going to bless this community. He's the one that's going to draw people to himself. He's the one that will save people. He wants to use you. That means the first thing we need to do is enter into his presence. Let him fill you with, your love, with his love, with his power. Let him use you. You've got to trust him.
We've got to enter into His presence. And as we enter into the presence of God and we sing His praises and we do His deeds, I think we're going to be blown away by what, with what He does. But we've got to enter our pre- His presence. We've got to trust Him to do what He says He's going to do. Will you pray with me? Father, you, there are not words to describe you. Your love is incomprehensible. Your righteousness is incomprehensible. There is none like you. And so we praise you. We thank you for drawing us to yourself. We thank you for the love, the grace, the mercy, the righteousness that is ours in Christ. God, would you break our hearts? Would you show us our need? Would you fill us with your faith so that we might enter your presence boldly by the blood of Christ? Would you give us the strength and the courage to remain in Christ no matter what storm comes in life? Give us the strength to trust you to remain in your presence by the blood of your righteous Son. Would you please use my brothers and sisters here for your glory, for your fame in this community. May all they do, may all they say point to you, to your grace, This sermon is from Edgewood Baptist Church. You can find more information about us online at ebc-edmonds.org. Thanks for listening.